What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, the official podcast of AOTG.com, and I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. And this episode, we're going to be interviewing Roger Barton to discuss Godzilla, King of Monsters. And then we're going to be joined by Brad Thomas to discuss their project, Evercast, which is this software that allows you, as an editor, to share and get reviews from your director, but instead of doing it the way you might do it with Frame.io, where you upload the file, the director watches it, and they leave a message, you actually get on almost like a Skype chat and review the cut and discuss it. Now, if you're interested in checking it out, of course, you can always go to evercast.us and you can take it for a demo or have them go through it with you, Um, but it's definitely something to check out. It's kind of, it was very interesting to do the interview this way and actually be able to see people in in person or I guess over the internet. So with all that said, here's my interview with Roger and Brad. So how did you get involved with uh, Godzilla? So I had finished Pirates of the Caribbean. I was taking some time off and Legendary Pictures called me who I had never worked with before And um, I've always been curious about the movies that they do because they're sort of, you know, in the genre that I've been working in for a while. And so when they told me it was Godzilla, of course, I became instantly uh, interested in doing it because, frankly, who wouldn't want to cut a big monster movie like that, Uh, especially one that really showcased all of the other monsters that the director, Michael Doherty, was planning to you know, reintroduce into this movie. And so I just got super excited about uh, the the prospect. I, there were some challenges, which we can get into later, um, about doing the project. And, and primarily that was uh, the fact that they wanted me to go on location uh, for four months. And that was a real problem for me at the time. Um, but yeah, I was super excited to cut the movie. What... Uh... Like, what was your knowledge or experience with Godzilla prior to the movie? So, I mean, you know, as a kid, of course, I watched, you know, um, plenty of Godzilla movies, but I was never so immersed in it. I was never really that kind of, you know, I never geeked out on it when I was a kid, but I was super entertained. Uh, I loved that he was sort of the monster you rooted for. Um, and so to have that, you know, that opportunity to work on, uh, a reimagining, uh, of the film was, was just, it was just awesome. Now, one of the things, cause I've never had the opportunity to work on such a big budget VFX heavy film. And so I'm wondering if you could tell me how, uh, how much leeway and how malleable, do scenes become when, you know, 50 or 70% of the scene is green screen and things aren't there or CGI? Like, are you able to work with Michael Doherty and say, okay, restructure this part of the story and rebuild parts? Or is it, you know, is the pipeline so locked down that you have to sort of follow it once it's there? Well, I would say it's infinitely malleable in most cases. Mm -hmm. Um, And it really depends on the personalities 
of those that are involved, primarily the director. Uh, Michael had done so much work prior to uh, any film being shot in terms of generating previs sequences, which are animated storyboards, um, mm-hmm. to the extent that he knew the lenses he was going to be shooting with, the angles, the camera moves, what actors would be in the frames, what the animation was they were reacting to in the background, uh, the the temp sound design that was created in the previs and the music or the absence of music. And he had put so much work into that, um, that, you know, for me, when I, when I did my first cut of those sequences, as he was shooting the scenes, it was very easy to see, Oh, I see this shot is for this in the previs. So it really wasn't that challenging putting those scenes into a first cut because it was, Michael was so crystal clear on what he wanted um, because he had done all that development during previs. Now, mm-hmm. creatively, on the flip side of that, I would say creatively that can be a little stifling, um, you know, for an editor to simply copy what was done before. And of course, you know, I feel like I can bring my experience to a project and try on new ideas. But in the early stages, whenever I would try that, it would seem to trigger Michael um, because he was so crystal clear on what he wanted it to be. He basically wanted his previous sequence to be replaced with live action elements, at least in a first pass. Um, And I completely respect that. And it's my job to help him fulfill, you know, his vision of the movie. And so once I sort of got past that adjustment period, um, we were good to go. And then once the, you know, those big sequences were up on their feet, then of course we could, you know, um, you know, change the structure a little bit um, based on the human performances or based on the animation that was happening. Um, and, And that's when I felt like I could, you know, inject sort of my past experience cutting these kinds of sequences in films. And um, because there was a lot of collapsing that needed to be done, as is often the case um, when you replace previs with real live action elements, it's just never pace wise the same. The animators of the previs always move too fast uh, through the shots. And when you get a live element with foreground human beings reacting to things, it's always going to take longer. And it's always going to take longer for the eye of the viewer to absorb all of this new information on a big screen with properly rendered backgrounds and creatures, et cetera. So how much change occurred between uh, the previs to the the final cut? Because it sounds like the previs was... Um, almost like, you know, here's our first cut. Now let's work on the story and mold it, right? Because that's sort of what you were saying. So yeah. mm-hmm. you guys do a lot of changes uh, to the story after the previous? Well, I would say we did a lot of collapsing. Um, mm-hmm. But in terms of, if you were to look at the previous and then look at what was released into the theaters, you would say, yeah, that's basically the same scene. I mean, I would know mm-hmm. what the changes were. Um, but, um, you know, to Michael's credit, 
um, putting in that, that extra work ahead of time meant that when he was shooting, he could get all the setups he needed in a much more efficient manner because he knew exactly what he needed. But not every filmmaker works that way. I mean, I've worked with plenty of other filmmakers like Michael Bay, who, uh, for better or worse, does the same thing in previs, right? He'll mm -hmm. previs a whole sequence. But then what Michael does, which is something that very, very few filmmakers can do, is show up to a set, a new location, and this is what he is absolutely amazing at, and imagine the, the previs and the animation and everything that he had envisioned. And now he sees a whole new host of opportunities in this new location, a whole new mm -hmm. host of camera angles that he can use. And he just, he just covers the scene, you know, um, in a brand new way. So I may get a whole new set of footage and look at the previs and go, <laughs> what? Like these two things don't line up, but in Michael's mind, you know, he knows everything that he's shooting, what's happening in the background, you know, and, and because as a film director, when you're on set and you've got literally hundreds of people, you know, asking you questions about, you know, production design, casting sets, you know, visual effects, um, it's sometimes difficult for a director to communicate to the editor what exactly they had in mind, because ultimately they know they're going to show up to the cutting room and sort of, you know, help guide the process. Um, but it's also creates an opportunity as an editor to look at these two different sequences and inject my own creativity uh, into that. So I find that process much more creative where, mm -hmm. Um, I take a new set of footage and I try to take the vision of the original previs and imagine it in a whole new set of plates. Um, okay. And that's, that's often how um, like George Lucas, when I did one of the star Wars movies, you know mm -hmm. um, every single frame of that was against a green or blue screen. Um, there were no practical backgrounds, but what Michael does is try to limit the um, the blue and green screens because he really wants to have that live big movie set feel, mm -hmm. and he feels like you can really only truly capture that practically. Not to mention the incredible expense it is afterwards to have to add in those practical backgrounds uh, into the mm -hmm. scenes. What about um, like one of the things that I feel would be really tricky is the geography. So keeping the audience oriented when you have so much going on, uh, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's Michael Bay or George Lucas or, you know, uh, Michael Doherty, um, because you want to keep the audience oriented of where they are, what they're looking at and not just jumping around and sort of distracting mm -hmm. them. So what's your approach to ensuring that the audience is, is focused and, and know where they are? I think it's just, you know, comes from experience more than anything else. Um, there are moments in every scene where you want to, you know, feel the, the fear, uh, the anxiety, the love, the hatred in an actor's performance. Um, mm -hmm. 
and there are other times that you want to be, you know, um, in a wider frame to understand where, what that fear is coming from or, you know, what, whatever that dynamic is. And, you know, during my first cuts, I always try as the staging of a scene gets changed that I'm popping out wide so that the, the audience can kind of reset and understand, you know, uh, how the staging has changed and where everybody is, whether that's human beings or creatures or ships or, you know, whatever. Um, but I'm, I'm always trying to focus on those moments, um, you know, that, that's driven by the storytelling, you know, what's important to the scene. Mm -hmm. I mean, for me, what's always most important are the human performances. Um, and, um, from a pace perspective, uh, how those human performances are reacting to the story is what I tend to try to, you know, bounce in between, uh, while I'm putting my first cut up. I don't know if that makes any sense, but, um, you know, Michael, Michael Bay has been, you know, pretty heavily criticized for some of his scenes for not establishing, you know, geography. Um, Mm -hmm. I think if you were to look at some of the early cuts of those scenes, you would, you would, you know, experience something else. But as that process of molding those big gargantuan movies down to a digestible length, um, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and because of, you know, in the past, you know, Michael, you know, what let his sort of um, impatience be imposed on the cut as well, that shots just tend to get dropped out. And when you're condensing Mm -hmm. a scene, what he's not willing to give up are the human performances. And so sometimes, you know, a casualty might be a wide shot that establishes geography. And listen, Michael is someone who knows his brand. He knows his audience. Um, and he feels like there is an expectation from his audience uh, on him to deliver what they expect. A big, you know, exciting, fast moving, um, uh, you know, action film uh, with many dimensions. And um, he does his best to deliver that. Well, and they wouldn't have made so much money if, if people didn't like them, right? I mean, it's it's hard to argue, and and you know, whenever I, whenever I fight with Michael, you know, uh, mm-hmm. if he really wants to end the argument, uh, he'll just say, "Well, you know, when you're directing your Transformers, uh, you can do it your way." You know, he'll say it with kind of a joke, but yeah, um, you know, we all know. Listen, he's made billions of dollars, you know, for several studios, and that's kind of yeah. hard to argue against. Yeah, exactly. But every every now, film uh, every filmmaker is different. Yeah. Now I have one last question before we jump into Ever- Evercast, and it's sure. um, going to be: What is a scene that um, that you've worked on or that you've done that you're most proud of from any of your films? Well, it's it's also one of the most uh, controversial scenes that I've ever done. Um, mm-hmm. I uh, cut a movie for Joe Carnahan called The Gray. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I'm, I'm a huge fan of his, um, he is an incredible writer 
a very intuitive uh, filmmaker and mm-hmm. just an incredible guy to work with. Um, and I mean, that, that entire movie is chock full of scenes that I'm actually quite proud of mm-hmm. because it, it, it lies in contrast to many of the big blockbuster, you know, these incredible, you yeah. know, these big action scenes that I've done, yeah. that movie is incredibly intimate. Um, and at the end of that movie, uh, it sort of culminates uh, when Liam Neeson, who has survived, uh, you know, the first 90 minutes of the film finds himself um, alone, uh, trapped mm-hmm in a wolf den and these wolves have been kind of picking off his team throughout the entire movie. He's the last man standing and he's looking at him, you know, he's, he's looking at the situation and he's asking himself, you know, how do I want to go out? And yeah, that decision sort of informs how you live your life, which is kind of in some ways the thesis of the film. And his performance was so strong to me. It said everything you needed to say about the end of the film. And there was this one tracking shot where he's preparing for battle um, by taking these uh, uh, little mini, you know, like um, little mini bottles at an airplane. Yeah. 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 And he breaks them off and he ties, you know, he wraps them around his hands and he's, you know, he's got this badass look and, you know, he's just been beaten up the entire movie. And finally he says to himself, I'm not taking this anymore. I'm going out, you know, fighting. Yeah. And that's all I needed to see. That's how I felt. Mm -hmm. And I had to fight a lot of people to end the movie that way, because of course there's a commercial expectation that you're going to see a wolf battle between Liam Neeson and, a you know, yeah. and the alpha and the alpha wolf. Right. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting that you would say that was controversial because everyone I know said that that's what they loved about it was that it left it open. Well, that's why I, like, I loved it. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's why I loved sort of it. Like, yeah. They were like, that's, it sort of, you know, they felt that was like the perfect way to end it as opposed to saying, okay, now here's his fight and he's going to win or lose. And yeah, so I'm and surprised you said, I, I haven't heard anyone complain about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, when you work on a film like that, you can't help but go into some of the chat threads and things. And then, you oh, okay. know, okay. you know, it's like, uh, I, you know, I can't, I guess I can't help myself at some point to read some of the reaction But yeah, yeah, we, you know, there was, um, we were criticized. And one of the reasons we were criticized for it um, is that they promoted that fight in the trailer. And so, because of course, Joe Carnahan shot the fight. I just Mm -hmm. didn't feel like you needed to see the fight. Um, And not to mention, ultimately, you know, when you're a filmmaker and you're shooting uh, a, a wolf, you know, battle between Liam Neeson and a wolf, a lot of that is going to be with puppets or you're going to have to rely on CG. And, you know, Liam Neeson fighting a puppet of a, you know, wolf just did not seem the right way to end that movie. And I cut that fight six ways to Sunday 
you know, trying to make it work. I tried intercutting it. I tried doing flash frames. And I mean, I, I probably did eight or 10 different versions of that ending. And whenever we tagged it onto the end of the movie, it kind of left the air, it let the air out mm-hmm. of the film. And by ending it on his, you know, that he can't, uh, Joe did this really slow push mm-hmm. on him that starts in kind of a medium wide and just ends in this, you know, great shot of his eyes and the t- determination. Mm-hmm. And once it cuts to black, um, I just thought it was a very daring way to end the movie. And, you know, hats off to Joe Carnahan for, you know, um, believing in it, sticking to our, the guns. Cause there was pushback from the studio, from a marketing perspective. Um, mm-hmm. and ultimately we got, we got it in the film and it's something I'm really proud of. Yeah, that's fantastic. Do you want to discuss, uh, Evercast now? And yeah, sure. We'd love to. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe Brad can join us here. Sure. Hey Brad. <laughs> So, I mean, it's probably a good time to kind of revisit Godzilla, right? Yeah. Because that's when um, I was introduced to Brad and Alex. Um, Mm -hmm. I was, at the time, um, separated from my wife um, for a few months. I had a 12-year-old who was grappling with this new reality. And... Having traveled to location throughout my career, this was one time I simply could not do it. Uh, I I couldn't abandon him at that time, right? So I started to vet all the different collaboration platforms that were out there. And (laughs) I I don't know if it was fate, um, but a neighbor who lived across the street from me, his name is Dan, and... uh, Dan looked me up on IMDb as we were becoming friends. And one day he came over to my house and goes, dude, I didn't know you worked on all these big movies. Oh my God. You got to meet my friends, Brad and Alex who are Mm -hmm. developing this collaboration platform. And I'm like, what are you? That's exactly what I happen to be looking for. Uh, Please put me in touch with them. So the next day, very much like what we're looking at here, I was sitting with Brad and Alex and experiencing Evercast for the first time. And um, what we'll see um, is that most importantly, the the stream that uh, you can send over the platform uh, has Mm -hmm. next to zero latency, uh, which is super important if you're trying to cut a scene remotely with someone else who happens to be in London or New Zealand or New York. Uh, from LA, when you say stop, it has to stop instead of continuing to roll for another, you know, between two and six seconds afterwards. Um, and so that really blew me away. Um, the fact that it didn't require any proprietary hardware, um, on either end that also blew me away. And then just the forethought into some of the tools that um, they had put into this platform really made my job a lot easier. And one of those is the ability to record this entire session. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, given that it has that ability, I could actually, hey, Brad, do you want to start a stream? 
and I'll just I'll just talk over the stream. You can just mute the audio. So, um, Gordon, as he starts the stream, it will appear as a new thumbnail down below. Okay. Um, and keep in mind that, you know, Evercast is agnostic to any application you happen to be working with. Mm -hmm. So right now he happens to, you know, have Premiere Pro up. Um, but this could be Avid. It could be Premiere, Final Cut. It could be Pro Tools. Uh, it could be Maya in animation program. Um, mm -hmm. It could be uh, in RV uh, uh, running visual effects uh, shots uh, into a, a, a visual effects review. Um, mm -hmm. So we can also take an external uh, uh, signal from either a live camera feed or let's say, for example, your Avid is air gapped for security. Mm -hmm and it's unable yeah. to be connected to the internet. Well, we can take the external signal coming out of the Avid, feed it into um, Evercast on a laptop and accomplish the same thing. Mm -hmm. In fact, we just had uh, a director from LA uh, direct an entire music video, which was being shot in London and the live camera feed was being sent through the platform to the director who was saying, okay, change the shot. Let's do this. Let's focus on that. And he directed the whole thing remotely on the platform. So we were super excited to hear that. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so as the guys, you know, did this demo, I was looking at this, the stream and, um, and was just kind of blown away by it. Um, the fact that, all the participants that can join and you can have, you know, eight to 10 people logged in and you see the thumbnail below here, right? Um, you yeah. could have, you could have 10 participants down below um, all joining from different locations around the world and experiencing the same image that everyone else is. Yeah. Um, and of course uh, I'll, I'll show you here, at the end. So aside from, aside from doing the, close my email program here. Um, while this session is, are we recording Brad? Okay. Uh, thank you. So you see down here, this is uh, in the lower right. That's wh where, you know, you're recording. Yeah. Um, so, Oh, you're not seeing my screen, right? With with the notes feature. Okay. Um. So there's a notes feature. Can we do this, Brad? If um. Okay. Okay. So there's a notes uh, feature which enables you to take live notes while the recording is happening. And those notes are time-stamped. Um, so what I would do while I was on Godzilla, um, I would be in my cutting room um, with Michael Doherty in Atlanta. I would be in Burbank. And uh, we'd be running a sequence. And I would have my assistant 
who was down the hall in the Evercast session at the same time, except he would mute his uh, camera um, so that he Mm -hmm. wasn't an active participant. And he would be taking notes in this section so that afterwards, like the day after, I could go back and uh, do all of the notes simply by clicking these timestamp notes because it takes me to that place in the recording where Michael says something that I still need to accomplish, right? So the next day when I was doing the notes, I would have Evercast on a laptop here. I'd have my Avid over here and I would just follow along. And anytime I had to do a note, I could stop and understand the context of the note much better um, Mm -hmm. because I I can choose to look at the director or the content he was referring to. So there's no, his, nothing gets lost in translation. Like I understood everything he was going to. What I'm used to in the past was, um, you know, looking at my yellow pad as I'm trying to drive the Avid, uh, you know, yeah. work with him remotely, trying to, you know, write down notes. And then I would look at my notes the next day and they're all like sentence fragments and, and you know, things that I couldn't read. And that leads to, uh, guesswork, misinterpretation, and mm-hmm. u- ultimately embarrassment because you, you know, I, I'm guilty of sometimes showing things where I wasn't completely clear on the note. And then, and yeah. then you get the, yeah, that's not exactly what I meant. And that's kind of embarrassing. So now by using this, it really eliminated that and kind of made me look like a rock star because the next time you saw the sequence, um, all the notes were done accurately. Um, and we were able mm. to push push the ball down the field in a much more efficient way. Um, in fact, by working remotely with um, with Michael, the irony is I actually got more FaceTime with him than I ever have, even when I went was on location, um, because all he had to do uh, at any point during the day is, you know, he would basically, you know, text me on his phone. Hey, Roger, can we meet in the room? So we would both click our Google Chrome bookmarks from either end, enter the room, and I could just instantly start streaming to him whatever I happened to be working on. Or if there was something specific he needed to see based on what he happened to be shooting that day, I could just instantly stream to him. We could talk about it, adjust it. If I needed a shot that might have been missing, I can show him the cut live uh, so that he can understand what shot is needed. And again, we can talk about it because he may say, well, I don't feel we need that shot because this is what I had in mind. And then I can adjust the cut live with him. And then, you know, the need for that shot kind of evaporates. So that efficiency is what was a huge game changer for me because what I'm used to is you know, if I need feedback on a sequence, I would have to export out of the Avid. Then we'd have to upload to, you know, any number of platforms. Then he'd have to download on his end. And it it removes that live, that, that live connection, that live collaboration that I think Evercast really promotes. Um, so it was a, it was a huge game changer for me. And when Michael came back from shooting, um, because of Evercast, 
Michael had made a pass on most of those sequences you were referring to earlier mm-hmm. um, because all those little five minute, 10 minute, half hour, one hour, three hour sessions that we had done during production added up to, um, you know, a cut that he was familiar with had made a pass on, even though we shot like 3 million feet of film on that project. Um, and so when he came back to the cutting room, back to LA, it, it removed a lot of that anxiety that a director often has, uh, which is, oh my God, what, you know, what cut do I have? Um, does this editor understand what I'm going for? You know, there's all this anxiety about them watching your first cut, um, no matter what director it is. Some directors that I work for don't even want to see it. They just want to like start on the movie scene by scene by scene. They can't actually... Yeah. They can't actually take watching the whole first cut because they'll just like take a razor blade to themselves. You know, they're just like, oh, my God, uh, so much to do. So um, Michael came back and he was totally comfortable because he had already known he had already seen basically the movie over the course of the shoot. And so we just kind of picked it up where we left off. Mm-hmm. Now, one of one of my questions for you guys is. Um, so if I see something like Frame.io or one of the other uh, companies that do um, sort of like notes for editors and producers, uh-huh. uh, everything's time code based. But in that case, you're uploading a video to the to the Internet, which could be a security problem for some companies. So in this case, is there going to be um, like are there plans to bring in time code or in some way communicate the time code with the notes so that you can bring it into it or bring them directly into uh, Premiere Pro? So you've seen that. um, I mean, I'm familiar somewhat with, you know, that idea. Um, We actually do something similar with uh, when, you know, when we take a movie out and we preview it, often we'll record Mm -hmm. their audience's reaction to the film. And then we'll take that recording, bring it back, cut it into a layer on the Avid Mm -hmm. So that we can actually run it is especially helpful for comedies because you can really see, you know, where you're getting your laughs and where you're not more importantly, so that you can make adjustments in those area areas where the comedy is kind of playing flat. Mm -hmm. So if that's what you're referring to a very similar kind of idea. um, Yeah. It's an interesting idea that, um, I mean, it's, it's one that is based on sort of, what we consider to be an old paradigm of having to first upload uh, files for then other people to see, and then you get notes Mm -hmm. and then those notes are distributed, uh, you know, after they're either handwritten or annotated on the screen. Um, What we primarily are interested in is bringing the filmmakers together in this space live and, and getting instant feedback. And it, we think it removes, you know, a, a lot of uh, inefficiencies, but also a lot of miscommunication. So I'll give you an example. Um, uh, you know, in, in the world that I work in, we spend hours every day in visual effects reviews where a director might be, you know, looking at um, – say they're looking at 20 shots from three different vendors. Um, Mm -hmm. And as they're going through, 
we are, are headed to a place where as we're recording the entire session, if there's an animator uh, at an MPC or at Framestore um, who needs to see the specific notes that the director gave on that shot, we'll be able to pinch off a section of that recording and then provision someone else to have access to it. So we're not moving files around because mm -hmm. all the files are contained on our very secure Amazon AWS S3 buckets. So those never move, but we can say, you know, if, if I'm working with Michael and he says, you know, this animation's not right, the current paradigm is, you know, you've got a bunch of note takers behind him interpreting what Michael's saying, trying to communicate, you know, if Michael's making gestures, it should be like this. And then the guy should do this. And they're like writing down, trying to, you know, understand or trying to translate or communicate what that note is. Mm -hmm. It often leads to, you know, misinterpretation on the other end. Um, okay. Whereas we'll be able to clip that little section out and basically you know, give that person, whether it's a animator, a composer, a sound designer, an editor, maybe it's a studio executive who needs to see uh, a scene, you know, maybe the director doesn't want the studio exec to come visit the cutting room, which is sometimes the case. Um, we can simply invite them into a room, show them only what they need to see and then dis disinvite them uh, so that, you know, it's, it's, it's that kind of spontaneity that we're going yeah. for rather than, you know, exporting and importing. Um, but that's, that's, that is something we're looking at uh, in the future. But right now we're just focused on the live collaboration aspect. Now you mentioned the security. So can you, sort of give me some background of the security choices yeah, you guys have made for Evercast. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up um, because, you know, when I first got the demo from these guys, I mm -hmm. um, was, was really, really excited to try to use this on Godzilla. I mean, it, as a, mm -hmm. I mean, it was personally very important to me so that I could stay home, as I said, with my, you know, kid who was trying to, you know, deal with this new this new life that he had with separated parents. And so um, I took the platform to uh, Legendary and to Warner Brothers and said, guys, I really believe in this. I really think that I can collaborate with Michael uh, during production using this platform. Will you please take a look at it? And Sorry, because recording stopped on my screen. Not sure. Yeah, it's it's not oh, the screen recording. Okay. Okay. So, um, so they um, they you know kicked the tires, uh, opened the hood, tried to break it, tried to break into it, and um, and they couldn't. And so that was sort of the big first step for us. Uh, that legendary and their content security department gave us provisional approval to use this on that film. Um, but at that point I still hadn't, hadn't shown the director 
uh, the platform. And so on a Sunday afternoon, uh, after we got the security clearance, um, I, I connected with the director who was using his laptop, I think in his apartment wirelessly. Um, and I just started to, to, you know, show him the platform. And, and what was interesting is the, the, what, what started out as a test just evaporated into a working session where we just started to work on the scenes because at that point I had about three weeks of footage and so I had, you know, cuts that I wanted to show him. And so um, we just started working and it turned into a working session of like two hours, three hours. And at the end of it, uh, he goes, I, I said, you know, do you still want me to come out to Atlanta? He goes, no, why would you want to come out here? Let's just continue using Evercast. And that's when I knew that, you know, this thing uh, that Evercast really, um, could make a big difference. And so that's when we started to use it. Since then, after my experience using it on Evercast, or I'm sorry, Godzilla, I believed in it so strongly that I uh, took a nine month sabbatical from cutting and became part of the company. I invested money into the company, full disclosure. Um, and um, walked the platform into all the studios that I already had relationships with and basically mm -hmm. introduced it to them, not only their IT content security department, their, their production technology department, uh, post-production, visual effects, and so on. Uh, and then just went through Paramount, Sony, Warner Brothers, Universal. I mean, we've done, we've, we've now been approved by every single major studio out there. Um, mm -hmm. And that's, that's no easy feat because, you know, if, if they have a $200 million IP streaming across our platform, uh, they've done their diligence on it and have a, and have a whole group of people who try to break into it and break it and test it. And so, so that's the reason we've been uh, approved that, um, you know, there's been a lot of vetting um, on the platform. And what is, like, do you guys ever, because um, I know someone who did something with uh, Disney, and they were required to work with, uh, there was like a white hat hacker program that um, they had to sort of sign up for so that people could test and constantly look for holes. Are you guys a part of that? And how does that work to, to secure you guys? Yeah, but we, we work with the company, the, the exact company you're talking about. We work with them, and we basically undergo several major eight-week penetration tests um, per year. So that was all that was all part of the whole Disney arrangement back in the day. Yeah. And um, why did you guys choose to go with a, a browser-based system as opposed to a, a software-based? Um, I think uh, just because... It was at the time. It was an easier way for us to get to the market quicker. Um, we do plan on having a native app at some point in the future, um, because once we take it out of the browser into a native app, we actually gain even more control over the video quality settings and stuff like that. Um, but initially, it was just time to market. It was quicker for us to go right into a browser, and we are compatible. We're using Chrome right now just because it's easier to build around one browser initially so you don't have to deal with you know the whole cross-browser compatibility issues that you that 
You, you know what what that's like, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why is Firefox showing the thumbnails in the top left? <laughs> <It makes sense. laughs> yeah. But uh, but yeah, so but we will be eventually. We're actually going to be releasing Safari uh, support very soon. And that that will also include iPad support, by the way. Okay. So we'll have iPad support, oh, and then Firefox will will follow. Um, I don't think we're gonna do anything for Edge. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So but that's, that's, that's one of, one of that's, that's it is, it is something, something that makes, makes this very easy for. for um, Technically, technically incompetent directors, directors to, to manage, manage on their end because, because all, all they, they have, have to do is be sent a URL that they, they click, click. Mm -hmm. invites them, them into, into the, the room. room, they simply you know, add, add their, their login, login credentials. credentials. Um, we, do we do have, have do you want to talk, talk about, about 2FA, 2FA Brad? Yeah, yeah, but actually, Roger, that's a really good point because you know, as we're onboarding all these clients and I'm interacting with them on a daily basis, that is definitely a huge thing because even though obviously installing software is easy, just that extra step yeah. can be the difference between a director willing to try it and a director not willing to try this. So the fact that they you know, can just fire up Chrome and literally click a link and then go in like Roger said, that it actually does make a big difference for certain people. And then as far as the, like, as far as the 2FA, you know, we just have the, we, have, we use Google Auth and you can you know, you can turn it on on your account, and we're eventually going to have like a uh, a user management enterprise like system, where companies or projects can enforce two FA and all sorts of other things. You know, from like an admin uh, system, instead of doing it directly from the room. Now, one of the issues I've encountered uh, with live streams, uh, and this one's going great, is that I'm currently in Canada. And our two primary internet providers uh, tend to throttle, uh, even though it's illegal. So, how do you tackle issues like that when, so if you know, if you're dealing with Korea, they have some of the fastest internet in the world. But if you're dealing with someone like myself in Toronto, where, you know, the the service provider might throttle because they don't want you to go for a bandwidth or anything like that, how do you tackle that? Uh, is it something you do through coding, or what's what's the process? Yeah, you know, part of it is that, like right now when I was streaming to you guys, I'm only streaming at two megabits per second. Mm -hmm. So there's really not much to throttle, you know, it, that, which is one of the beauties of the platform. I can even go less than this. And with our new, we have a new version of our streaming software coming out in the next few weeks with a different codec. You can even go, you can go less than two megabits per second and still get an awesome stream. Um, and so in terms of like throttling and everything, we, I don't, we don't really run into that issue to be honest with you. Uh, just because the bandwidth requirements that we, that we suggest are very, very low to begin with. We recommend most <laughs> of our clients, they stream around four megabits, but you can go as high as 10. And as soon as we have this new codec in place, you can go as low as one and still have a very good stream. But for, you know, for vi the visual effects community, it was important that we introduce this new codec um, because the image quality has just taken a huge leap forward. And, you know, mm -hmm. if, if in most of those situations, when you have visual effects supervisors, you know, judging, uh, you know, lighting, texture, uh, animation, they really need to see the best quality. So enabling you to dial up uh, that uh, those megabits um, with VP9, which is the new Google... Google codec mm -hmm. we have, we're implementing, um, it'll get us very close to having a 
visual effects supervisor final uh, visual effects shots on the platform. Interesting. What are, because um, I'm sure you guys were watching, you know, over the last two years, there's been um, net neutrality has sort of been taken a hit in the US. So uh, do you guys have strategies to tackle that? Because what I've seen in, in some countries where net neutrality hit is that they create the fast lanes where you know you have to pay a certain fee so for example uh netflix in some countries has had to pay extra money to the government to get faster service or extra money to the service providers to make sure that they get in the fast lane for their customers is what are your strategies for that how are you going to tackle the the net neutrality issue in the state yeah you know right now it's not um it's not really a concern for us now, where it will become a concern at some point is when, you know, right now we're only focusing on the, you know, the professional movie and showmaking industry and, and advertising as well, right? So once we, at a certain point, if we choose to open this up more to like the prosumer market, you know, where there's, you know, I mean, obviously the size of that market is much larger than the, you know, the market that we're tending to now, <laughs> um, the amount of bandwidth that our platform will use will go up as well quite significantly. Um, yeah. so, um, and I think, well, that's one of those things that we'll just kind of have to deal with it when we get to that point, you know, cause obviously if we get to that point, that means that's, it's, it's a good day for us if we're able to get to that point where <laughs> we're producing enough bandwidth that we actually have to, you know, really focus on net neutrality. But in terms of like right now, because of our bandwidth requirements and they're so low and the fact that the market that we're, you know, we're not like Netflix. I mean, Netflix, I can't even imagine how much... <laughs> <laughs> it's i mean it, you know it's funny because netflix is still amazon aws's largest customer yeah yeah i was gonna say they're on amazon servers too. yeah so yeah. or youtube or any of those types of platforms where they have millions and millions of users um i mean i can't even imagine how much they use but in terms of someone like us at this at this given point it's it has it's not an issue okay and and now one of the things that like i've seen really good quality video here but in like the demo or the video I saw online, they talked about working with sound teams. Uh, how do you tackle, um, or I guess, I guess dealing with producers in the sense of, um, you know, I've worked with producers and I'll, you know, if I'm in the app, I'll just bring the quality down so that it plays better and I don't have to deal with the, the 4K or the 2K files. And you know, the producer will see it and freak out because they'll be like, oh my God, my image is out of focus or it's soft or it's pixely. And it's like, no, no, it's just, you know, bump it up. So when you're dealing with producers, um, how do you ensure that, like, obviously we've talked about the video quality, but I'm also thinking the sound. So if you're, if they're dealing with sound people and the sounds working in surround sound or is, you know, working in Atmos, you know, the director is going to be like, well, where's the sound or where's that sound? Uh, mm -hmm. Because they can't hear it in the different spaces. Are there plans to tackle that or how, you, how do you tackle sound in that situation? We've talked about, you know, the different formats and we're of course well aware that some people choose to work in 5.1. <clears throat> um, I personally work in uh, LCR mm -hmm. um, and the platform currently uh, supports high fidelity stereo audio. And for right now, um, in terms of our development priorities, um, that's kind of sitting fine. I think most of our use cases are focused on content. Um, and so in the use cases that we have currently had for sound, specifically for sound, 
<clears throat> we've done some ADR uh, sessions uh, mm-hmm. remotely on the platform. Um, and then we've also had composers, you know, um, work with directors, you know, just in terms of, you know, and when you're, when you're talking about, you know, if, if, a if a cue is working or not working in context with a scene, mm. um, you don't really need Atmos or five one to, for a director yeah. to communicate, Hey, this cue is not working for this reason or that. So that's why we're kind of, you know, uh, happy with where that is sitting, at least at the moment. But to your point, yeah, we have talked about uh, a future, you know, ability to be able to stream 5.1 or Atmos or some, you know, many of the other formats um, because we do see um, in the future the ability to stream entire films across the platform. In fact, um, we have one director who's art, you know, already done that. He basically has a house in North Carolina. Uh, he was working for a studio here. He was on vacation at his house and he needed to see the current cut. And so the cutting room basically hit play uh, on their end. And then in the director's house, um, the director's assistant in, you know, was accepting the stream into their laptop and they, they air streamed the, the Chromecast or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. They air streamed it to the projector, which then projected it for the director. And we were like, Oh, you did what? Cause we were so concerned that was going to create, you know, additional problems. And, and they said, what? It worked fine. Um, he, sc- he screened the whole movie that way. And we were like, wow, okay. Um, so, you know, we do see future applications like that. Um, yeah, we've actually, yeah. you know, over the last three months, particularly, we've had a serious surge of clients come in for sound composition, sound spotting, um, yeah. and they're replacing, so a lot of them are using uh, Source Connect. And yeah. so they're basically replacing Source Connect with us uh, for, everyone's got their various reasons, um, but, and then outside of like music composition too, we had a major rock band, I can't say the name of them, but they, the director was in the UK and the uh, band was in LA, the director couldn't make it to LA, so they streamed one or two red cameras on location and they streamed <laughs> the entire set to the director in the UK and the UK <laughs> director directed the entire music video. Jeez. I the, Well, just thinking of the ADR sessions I've done over the phone where someone calls in, <laughs> it's oh, yeah. definitely a better step up. <laughs> yeah, it's very cumbersome. Yeah. Uh, now I have one last question that I la- like to ask everyone I interview, um, and it's just sort of a fun one to wrap things up. And that's, what's your favorite guilty pleasure film to watch? Hmm. Um. For me, I would say, you know. I tend to like sort of the big, gigantic, operatic, uh, you know, films, and 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 one that I, if it's if I catch it on cable, it's it's just hard for me to put away. Um, is probably Braveheart. Um, it's it's just one of those films that you know has so many textures to it. 
in terms of intimate, you know, human moments, like in the opening of the scene, when that little girl gives the flower to the boy, you know, um, it's like, I'm just a sobbing mess. Um, <laughs> and there are several moments throughout that movie where I either feel exil- exhilarated or, or, you know, just I'm leaning forward because of these intimate moments that are captured too, but it, yet it's on this gigantic scale. Um, you know, those are the kind of, you know, movies, um, that I, I, it's, yeah, it's a guilty pleasure. I actually, I, cause you asked me earlier, some of the editors I interviewed, I interviewed Steven Rosenblum uh-huh. about that years ago. Yeah. yeah. And he was saying that, uh, um, Mel Gibson would bring in these like dolls that they could fight with if they were get, if the argument was getting too heated. <laughs> really weird, yeah, but he said, yeah, it, it really helped de you know deescalate arguments. So that's really funny. <laughs> what about you, Brad? About yeah, I'd have to go with uh, Spaceballs. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I quote so many things in that movie. Um, you know, just uh, there's lots of epic movies. Like Brave, Braveheart's definitely, you know, on the top. But in terms of just like, don't want to think. I just want to watch and have fun. Spaceballs yeah. is definitely one of my favorites. Fantastic. Well, thank you guys so much for letting me interview. Well, uh, thanks a lot, Gordon. We really appreciate the nice opportunity to, you, to uh, show you guys Evercast. Yeah, great to meet you. So that was my interview with Roger Barton and Brad Thomas. I'd like to thank the two of them for joining me and discussing not only Godzilla King of Monsters, but also Evercast. If you want to check out Evercast, you can check it out at evercast.us. I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.